From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When a massive earthquake hit Haiti, it also hit home for a relief group in Colorado. The epicenter is just miles from where they've operated for more than 30 years. We'll talk with the organization's director as he heads there to help. Then, what type of pipes brings water into your home? There are an estimated 65,000 in Colorado made out of lead, and those can pose health risks for drinking water. We'll break down a plan to replace those lead pipes with safer alternatives. How realistic is it, and how can you find out if your drinking water goes through lead pipes? Plus, what historic places should be preserved? A lot goes into the decision. We also consider things like the diversity of sites and the different stories behind them about different ethnic groups and uh, events in Colorado. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The death toll continues to rise in Haiti after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake struck the island in the Caribbean last Saturday. So far, more than 2,000 people are confirmed dead and 10,000 injured. Those numbers are expected to climb as searches through rubble continue. The quake was centered on a rural area about five miles from the city of Petit Trudenip, where a Colorado nonprofit called Locally Haiti has worked for more than 30 years. The agency's director, Wynne Wallent, is here tonight, or was rather is headed there tonight to survey the damage and offer help. He's here now. Wynne, welcome to the program. Thank you. You've been in touch with the folks in Petit Tru since last weekend. What kind of damage are they telling you to expect? How bad are things? Things are bad. It's a really serious situation. Um, people are people are hurting in multiple ways. Um, the most urgent and immediate need that our local leaders identify really right now is shelter. As you know, Tropical Storm Grace just passed through uh, Haiti right after the earthquake. Um, a lot of folks are sleeping outside, um, you know, without a roof over their heads. Um, and so shelter is the, is the biggest immediate need. Um, but pretty much anything you can imagine right now is a challenge in that community. Do you have any estimates of how many homes may have been lost in Petit Tru? In Petit Tru and the surrounding areas, um, so Petit Tru is part of the Department of NEEP, um, the latest estimate that I have is over 3,000. You're, you're about to leave for Haiti. What are your immediate priorities when you get there? So, yeah, so it's a few things. Um, first of all, it's just direct support. I mean, we already have funds on the way there and funds there, but also in a situation like this, to be honest, to have cash on hand to share with local institutions immediately is really important. It's the local people and the local leaders there that are able to identify the gaps and uh, the most urgent needs. So to have some cash is, is a big priority. In addition to that, we're bringing some requested and dedicated supplies that have been donated and sourced through direct Relief, which is a partner of ours that uh, specializes in disaster response. Um, in addition to that, it's it's solidarity and information sharing and relationship building. We've been in this community for 32 years. These relationships are very personal, and so just to be there in person and um, you know to listen to people and to to uh, to 
just share our, our, our thoughts and to be with them. Um, and then finally, a really key thing about this trip, um, there's a Haitian engineer, a colleague um, who is trusted and has spent a lot of time in Petitru. He's from Port-au-Prince. A structural engineer will be visiting to, to assess damage in our core programs and also in the community and also support with some of these provisional structures. Um, we had just um, not long ago actually rebuilt the school on our on our main campus, which is called St. Paul's School and Campus, because we were uh, worried that the previous structure was unsafe. So we had actually taken the previous structure down and built a new, safe, light, light roof school building in collaboration with this engineer, and that's serving as a real hub for the community. So the school itself is okay, but there are other older buildings on campus and buildings spread all throughout the community that have serious issues. And so um, we're going to pivot to what is sort of like a phase two, but also urgent plan to see how we can reinforce those structures so that, that the good work that is and has been happening by local leaders can continue. How many people are able to shelter in that school? Do you know? I don't have a firm number, but my sense is over 100. And as we said, nationally, the official death toll toll stands at over 2,000 people, and that will likely grow. Were any people that you know and folks involved in your program killed? Uh, Yeah, we had um, uh, a 17-year-old participant in one of our uh, girls' empowerment clubs, one of the newer clubs that we had just founded. Her name is Mari Lynn. Um, who who passed away um, as a direct result of a wall falling. Um, so obviously our, our leaders there and girls empowerment mentors that manage that club have spent time with her family, and it's been a, a hard thing for, for that community. Um, uh, that's one example. But, yeah, there's loss throughout the community. I am so sorry for your loss. Thank you. You lived in Haiti for a couple of years after the 2010 earthquake that almost leveled the capital city of Port-au-Prince. Does it take you back to that time? It does. Um, You know, it was obviously the news was jarring and um, folks in Haiti in particular, you know, everyone has experienced this trauma before. And so um, I think myself uh, for sure, but more importantly, our, our partners and leaders there were brought right back to that moment. And, you know, the hope is that the lessons that were learned uh, from that 2010 response can make this response different and more impactful. Um, uh, you know, that that involves getting resources into the hands of local institutions and having real direct response programs led by the people that know their communities best. That involves making sure that there's real coordination among partners, um, you know, and the people that know where the gaps are are the local leaders. Um, and so making sure that uh, coordination happens. And then also a lesson learned from the 2010 earthquake is that this can be a chance for a rural development. After the 2010 earthquake, lots of people left Port-au-Prince because they had lost homes, homes had been damaged, and went out into rural areas where everybody has family. Um, One of the things that folks have commented on since then is that could have been an opportunity to have aid support those rural communities to allow them to take in these new folks and develop the rural economy. that didn't happen, and folks ended up going back to Port-au-Prince because that's where sort of some of the, the more of the aid was. This earthquake is different. It's in the rural part of the country. So uh, the aid programs, again, through local institutions, they can um, help transition into longer-term development in these rural places, and that eases strain on the capital. It helps to, these rural communities to, to develop over the long term. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned from 2010, and uh, you know we want to play our small part in making sure that happens. And beyond rebuilding, what kind of aid do you see would need to happen in those rural areas to rebuild that way? 
Well, yeah, like you said, structural is first and foremost that folks have a place to live and a, a place to work. Um, but in addition to that, you know, all of the programs that we focus on under normal circumstances, you know, it's an overlapping set of community development programs. It's community health. It's support for rural community health workers. It's support for the clinic. It's support for education, um, girls empowerment, agriculture. It's really putting resources in the hands of the local people in these rural communities so that it can be a place where you can raise a family and have expectation to have a job and economic opportunity where you can deliver a baby in a healthy way. People want to stay in these beautiful rural homelands. They, w- they would prefer to stay there than to have to emigrate in dangerous ways or flock to the overcrowded capital. It's just a question of whether there's opportunity and investment in those places. For context, what was like life like for people in Petitrue before the earthquake compared to what they're seeing now and will be dealing with for the foreseeable future? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been enormous progress in the community that we work, but it's also still a place of great need. You know, we always try to focus on the positive and on on stories of progress because they're so real and they're so often ignored or or not reported. Um, So, you know, in those areas that I mentioned in education and jobs creation and agriculture, um, there's been a lot of progress in the community. But I don't want to, you know, minimize the fact that it is a place of poverty uh, when it comes to basic needs. You know, rural poverty is a little bit harder sometimes to understand than urban poverty because you go there and you look at this place and it's beautiful and fertile and it's on the coast. Um, But uh, there are certainly uh, uh, a good number of families that don't have access to basic needs despite all the progress that's occurred. Um, So all of our programs are really just aimed at channeling investment to this place and letting that investment multiply within the community. When you were talking about the earthquake in Port-au-Prince in 2010, you said this is trauma that everyone has been through before. Haiti gets hit frequently by earthquakes. You mentioned that there is widespread poverty and there's political turmoil. The president was recently assassinated. Are you hearing from folks about the emotional and the mental health cost of this barrage of crises? For sure. Um, You know, it's a mix. And I think it's true in Haiti as it's true here. People deal with trauma in different ways. Um, I've had conversations with folks on WhatsApp. Um, You know, you leave voice messages back and forth. Um, And folks that are really eager to share how they're feeling and really eager to process this moment um, and sort of the fragility and vulnerability and other folks that haven't haven't been able to go there quite yet and are really just focused on doing the next right thing for their family and their community. Um, but as you said, there there's trauma of all kinds. Um, it doesn't mean that the folks there are used to the trauma. It doesn't mean that um, it, it's any easier uh, for, for folks in Haiti than it would be anywhere else. Um, but you're right, there has been no shortage of traumatic events lately. Do you face logistical challenges when you're getting into Petit True once you arrive in the country? Uh, yes. I'm, I mean, so uh, there has been, you mentioned political uh, instability. Um, the last year or so and the last few months in particular have been a really difficult time, um, uh, particularly in Port-au-Prince. So there are times that sections of the city are kind of locked down and you can't pass through. Um, we, you know, thanks to long relationships and thanks to local partners, um, we have some creative ways to, to get through that and get out to Petit True. Um but it, it is challenging logistically, both in the sense of uh, challenges specific to Port-au-Prince, and then obviously uh, the earthquake hasn't helped. Um, how do you develop your passion for this country, and why is Haiti of particular importance to you? How did you wind up here? 
Well, my context personally for the country is actually the 2010 earthquake. So I, I first went after the earthquake in 2010. I was working with a, a remarkable Haitian-led organization called Fondation Saint-Luc at the time. Um, so I, I came to help for, for a few months and ended up staying for two and a half years. Um, you can't go to Haiti without being uh, deeply affected and inspired by the people there. Um, there is uh, immense need, as we've discussed at length, but there is so much to learn from Haiti. There's so much uh, to be enriched by in Haiti. And so uh, I don't know anybody that has gone to Haiti and sort of said, ah, that was okay. You, you go to Haiti and you're affected by it. It's, an, it's, it's a, a singular, magical um, and truly beautiful place. Tell me about one of those lessons that you learned or a person who inspired you. Oh, there's so many. Um, the one that jumped to mind immediately is is Raphael, our, the agronomist that, that leads all of the agriculture programs in Petitru right now, um, the agriculture programs supported by Locally Haiti. He was one of the first uh, folks that I, that I heard from um, after the earthquake on Saturday morning. And he's just an example of someone who, who has a very understated uh, listening style of leadership. You watch Raphael sort of in the courtyard of these small farmers that we support, for example, and he makes everyone uh, feel like they are the absolute center of the story, um, and he fully li and deeply listens while he's also uh, bringing really important resources and education to them. But but when he leaves, you know, they they feel like uh, he was grateful to be there. He's just the kind of leader that is inspirational in an understated way, and he was so ready to help. He's actually visiting a community as we speak to do sort of a quick needs assessment, and then they'll go back later in the day uh, with some basic needs, uh, food, water, etc. cetera. Um, but there are so many stories. He's just the one that popped to mind first. Wynn, safe travels, and thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for having me. Wynn Walland is executive director of Locally Haiti, a Colorado nonprofit that works in rural development in the Caribbean nation. There are nearly 65,000 lead pipes that carry drinking water to homes across Colorado. That's according to a recent survey by the National Resources Defense Council. It's something President Biden wants to fix. Here he is talking about his American jobs plan earlier this year. Everybody remembers what happened in Flint. There's hundreds of Flints all across America. How many of you know when you send your child to school, the fountain they're drinking out of is not fed by a lead pipe? Biden's jobs and infrastructure plan requested $111 billion to remove every single lead pipe in the country and to fix the nation's crumbling water infrastructure. The bills to make that funding a reality are still caught up in Congress. But Eric Olson says this is still an exciting and unprecedented time. He's been fighting for clean drinking water for more than three decades, going all the way back to the EPA under the Reagan administration. He's currently the senior strategic director for NRDC's health team, Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been focused on drinking water quality for decades, and you've seen a lot. The idea that President Biden has called for the replacement of all lead drinking water pipes in the country, how significant is that? It's an extremely important signal that finally we're getting around to making lead and drinking water, and honestly, drinking water generally, a high priority. We've been fighting this issue for a long time. And a lot of these pipes date back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we're still drinking from lead pipes, which is crazy. 
how realistic is it to replace all of these pipes if there's some of them are over 100 years old? Well, it's very realistic. And we know that because some cities have actually made this a priority and done it. So uh, everyone remembers Flint, Michigan, which is now wrapping up its replacement after about three years of work to replace all of its roughly 10 to 20,000 lead service lines. And Newark, New Jersey is replacing all of its lead service lines in about two years. So, um, and they have more than 20,000 lead service lines. So it is something that can be done and some cities are doing it. It's just, we need to put our our feet down and say, look, we're gonna make this a priority and we're gonna do this. So we'll get back to the infrastructure bill and funding in a minute. But first, help me understand the scope of this problem we're dealing with. Much of the water infrastructure in the U.S., like you said, it was built over 100 years ago. What are your biggest concerns about the condition of that infrastructure? Well, these um, pipes, the lead pipes, but also the water treatment plants and the so-called distribution system, these are the water mains that bring the water to our streets Uh, They're just falling apart in many cities across the country and small towns as well. Um, It's sort of an out of sight, out of mind problem. We don't usually think about it. We turn on our drinking water tap in the kitchen or we take a shower or flush our toilets and we don't even think about where the water comes from or where it goes after we use it. So it's been a problem that we uh, most Americans really have sort of relegated to something we don't need to worry about. But we do know now that it's falling apart. It's aging. Um, we're seeing massive leaks and a quarter of a million water main breaks in the United States per year. So this is a big problem. And we're pleased that finally it's starting to get some recognition. And when you say it's falling apart, I mean, people just kind of expect their water to turn on when they turn on the kitchen sink. But how can it be falling apart down the line and affect people or the cracks in the line? What do you mean by that? Yes. So a lot of these pipes, as I mentioned, are are decades old, in some cases more than 100 years old. Um, They are leaking in many cases. They collapse in some cases. Uh, You know, all the time, um, all over the country, we see these water main bursts where um, suddenly a street opens up with a geyser of, of water or a flood of water coming out of these leak pipes. And then, of course, there's also the issue of the drought and Um, A lot of the infrastructure really is unable to deal with um, drought conditions and unable to really make up for the water loss that we're seeing in the Colorado River and many other rivers across the country. And can you remind us briefly, when it comes to lead, what does it do that makes people sick? Lead is a toxin to uh, um, multiple systems in our body, but especially to the brain and nervous system in young children and developing fetuses. So it can interfere with the brain's ability to develop in a young child or in a fetus. It can cause delays in ability to learn. It can cause problems with impulse control. Um, There are even links to um, criminality, for example. Um, There's a higher risk of criminal behavior later in life in a child that's been exposed to lead at a young age. And now the new evidence is showing that there are a lot of cardiovascular risks for adults. Um, And some studies that have been published in the last few years in The Lancet, which is a medical journal, are suggesting that there's widespread cardiovascular disease, um, including heart attacks and deaths as a result of lead exposure. So there are all these different health effects 
But the good news is that the solution is, is right in front of us. It's really to pull the lead pipes out of the system, and that's going to substantially reduce the amount of lead people are exposed to. How many pipes in Colorado are affected by this? Well, they're conflicting estimates, to be honest with you. We did, uh, the industry did a survey about five years ago, the water utility industry, suggesting something short, around 58,000 lead service lines in Colorado. Our more recent survey where we went to the state um, indicated, as you said at the top of the show, um, almost 65,000 lead service lines in the state. And I saw recent press clips um, for Denver alone saying that there may be more than that um, just in Denver, more lead service lines just in Denver. So um, I think really what we need to do is a full inventory to make sure we know where those lead service lines are. That should have been done a long time ago. Um, right now, most utilities are starting to do that or are going to be forced to do it. And the states really need to get their arms around this problem and start replacing those pipes as soon as possible. In Colorado, are those lead line service pipes concentrated in certain areas of the state? Actually, we do know that a lot of them are in Denver, the Denver metro region. Um, but we also know that a lot of them are in smaller towns. So interestingly, the, the industry voluntary survey that I mentioned a minute ago found that there are tens of thousands of these lead service lines in smaller communities. So um, they estimated about 23,000 um, lead service lines are in communities that serve um, fewer than 50,000 people. And most of those are in even smaller communities, those that serve fewer than 10,000 people. So we have it spread around. Um, certainly a lot of them are in bigger cities in Colorado, but unfortunately we also have this problem in a lot of smaller communities as well. In the city of Denver, some of its issues stem from the corrosiveness of its drinking water going through those pipes. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Yes. Yeah, so the problem with lead in your tap water is mainly that the lead come is leached out of the this lead service line, which is the pipe between the water main and your house. Um, that's the biggest source of lead. In some cases, you may have some lead in indoor plumbing or in your faucet, that kind of thing. The, way to, the best way to control this problem is twofold. One is to treat the water so it's not corrosive. So in other words, it doesn't eat away at the lead in the lead service line and in your indoor plumbing. And the second thing that we can do is to pull out those lead service lines, those lead pipes. And if we do both of those, we can really substantially reduce the amount of lead that people are exposed to, and in many cases, virtually eliminate the lead exposure. Eric, I am curious how pipe replacement actually works. If the lead pipes to my house are going to be replaced and I look out my window while the work is being done, what do I see? Well, there are a couple ways that lead pipes can be replaced. The modern way to do it that is now being used, for example, in Newark, New Jersey, is what's called a pull-through method, where you just dig a fairly small hole near the street um, where the lead line goes into the water main, and you dig another hole at or near the house, um, um, or in some cases, you can actually go into the home. And what they do is they basically cut off the lead pipe at both ends. They attach a new copper pipe to that cut off lead pipe, and then they pull through from the street um, the old lead pipe and pull through the copper pipe. And that way they don't have to dig up the whole yard. They can do it in as little as a day, um, in, in some cases, a few hours. 
Um, and it's much less um, problem and it's obviously less expensive to do it that way. So this is what we're urging is that these less disruptive methods that are cheaper and uh, you know less impact on the community and on households should be more widely used. And that I think would be something that will help us as the infrastructure legislation um, is going forward. We're hoping that we'll get full funding to make that happen. You mentioned replacing the lead pipes with copper ones. That is a little expensive. Plastic is another option, but you do not recommend that because it doesn't last as long and could be a real problem in the West with bad wildfires, right? That's right. We're not recommending plastic. Um, copper is time-tested. It works. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, um, but relative to the total cost of digging up, um, you know, which can be three to $5,000, um, the cost of the copper is relatively modest, and it'll we're sure it's going to last pretty long. The problem with plastic is, as you mentioned, uh, both leaching of chemicals, we're not sure exactly how long it's truly going to last, and there have been real problems with wildfires um, melting the plastic in homes and even um, in some of the plastic underground and causing serious contamination of entire water supplies. So um, we're urging that uh, copper be used as an alternative um, to lead. Okay, let's get to the elephant in the room here. How could all of this be funded? Well, this is the big question, and this is why we are so excited that there's true discussion now. The president has called for $45 billion for lead service line replacement. We think that's close to the mark of how much is needed. Um, unfortunately, this bipartisan deal that you may have read about in the papers or heard about um, on your station um, only funds about a third of that, so $15 billion. Um, the problem with that is that half of that money is going to be in loans, and we're concerned that it's really not going to get the job done. So we're hopeful that the second part of the, the big infrastructure package that's being discussed in Washington now, um, which is called a reconciliation bill, that that bill will make up the difference and add the other $30 billion that's needed. So we think between the $15 billion that's in this bipartisan deal, plus we hope an additional $30 billion um, that many people are pushing for um, in the reconciliation package, that we could actually get this job done and get it done quickly. We'd like to see all the lead pipes in the country replaced within 10 years, and that's definitely doable, especially if we get this additional funding. What is the pushback in Congress against the effort to replace lead pipe infrastructure? Well, it's not like there's any big lobby in favor of having people's water contaminated with lead. Um, the problem is um, competing priorities. And um, obviously, we believe that this is a high priority. It's a readily solvable problem. Um, it's a problem that was, frankly, created by local governments and governments, uh, water utilities, by authorizing and in many cases requiring these lead pipes. And there is a ready solution. As I mentioned, you can fix this problem in as little as a day per house and even do entire streets in a matter of a few days. So uh, this is something that we think is a high priority. It would address really a, a major equity issue, which we haven't really talked about, but in many communities, um, lead poisoning is endemic to some of the lower income communities of color. And um, getting rid of the lead pipes is going to help reduce the total exposure in all communities that are exposed. But it's an, a special issue in many communities of color um, across the country and 
uh, we're concerned that with unless we make those investments, we're not going to fix the problem. In about the 30 seconds we have left, how can someone find out if the pipes going into their home are lead? The first thing you can do is ask your water utility if they have a record of whether your pipe is lead or not. That's the first call to make. And you can also go into your basement or your crawl space and look, take a magnet to the pipe that's coming in with the water. If the magnet sticks to it, it's it's probably steel, of course. Um, if it doesn't and it's metal and you scratch it with a coin and it looks shiny and it's relatively soft, it's probably lead. If you go to our website at nrdc.org, um, we actually have a walkthrough method for how you can figure out if your pipes are wet or not. Well, Eric Olson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Eric Olson has been fighting for clean drinking water for more than three decades. He's currently the Senior Strategic Director of Health for NRDC. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In a world where maps must be drawn and people divided, no part of Boulder County should be included in a district with Bell County. A beast of nightmare stalks the land. One of the shapes looked like a mythological salamander. That is where journeyman drain comes from. From CPR News, Purplish, the redistricturating, how Colorado is picking its new political maps and why it matters. Everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Some Colorado employers are eager to bring workers back into the office, but there's not a lot of consensus on the best way to do that. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland spoke with workers in downtown Denver to get their take on what they're facing. The Delta variant has definitely thrown a wrench and plans to return to the office this fall. Mask mandates are back in some places, and others have delayed their return indefinitely. A lot of companies are kind of in a holding pattern. Managers don't want to force people back in, especially with so much uncertainty about where we are in the pandemic. What it all means for office workers remains to be seen. But there are people that are already back to the daily commute. So I went to where the office workers are, or at least where they would be if people were actually going to the office every day to find out how they feel about the situation. I met Will Coleman walking down 17th Street in downtown Denver, just a few blocks from the Capitol building. It's lunchtime, and he's carrying a bunch of sandwiches back to his coworkers at the Colorado Health Foundation. He works in IT and facilities management and never completely left the office. Vendors still have to come in and flowers still have to be watered and that type of thing. So I personally, once a week, have always been there. He's coming in more now to prepare for the rest of the SAS return on September 1st. Coleman is fine doing most of his work remotely or in the office, but he can see some challenges to bringing people back with COVID protocols. If we're actually going to ultimately not be able to talk to each other that much and interact with each other that much or from a distance, kind of takes away from the point of it, right? But he is ready for a return to whatever normal is these days. I want people to come back that want to be there, right? So... It's cool to see people again, interact with them. A lot of people I talk to feel the same way. Guy Ree Pendleton is sitting on a bench in front of the Wells Fargo building, clearly dressed for a day at the office. She works in accounting at an energy firm and has been coming in four days a week since the middle of June. She says HR has been good about communicating and that 88% of employees were vaccinated before they came back to the office. She feels safe, plus she wanted to come back. I worked from home for a year and a half, and I was getting tired of it. <laughs> she has one big problem, working from home. 
distractions. Do you have pets or anything, something that distracts you? Just a husband. What does he do? Distract me. <laughs> Will Cross and Matt Faga are sitting outside eating lunch in button-down shirts. They're lawyers at a small firm in downtown Denver. They said the office has been almost full lately. Cross and Faga say they enjoy the camaraderie of people being back in one place. Cross says their lunch discussion today is casual. Everything not work-related, I guess, just catching up. Uh, yeah, that's, that's about it. Vacation plans or what we did for our vacations, things like that. He says there's no plan to force people back in, especially now with the Delta variant. It's been nice because it's been relaxed and encouraged to come back, but not mandated or required, anything like that. But other workers don't see the return as relaxed. Walking around downtown, you're mostly going to find people, for whatever reason, have chosen to be there. The people uncomfortable with returning to the office, or who are more productive at home, or who don't want to deal with a long commute, they're probably not at the office these days. And those people might be less likely to speak openly about how they feel. Colorado Public Radio received an email from a woman who asked to be anonymous to protect her job. She says she feels pressure to return and that her company explicitly prohibits employees from asking others about their vaccination status. She's concerned there are people at work who aren't taking COVID-19 seriously. She doesn't want to come back in, but doesn't know how to tell her boss that. That feeling doesn't surprise somebody like Coleman with the Colorado Health Foundation. He says bringing those workers back isn't easy. But if they are um, not going to be able to be the way they are, or, you know, half are uncomfortable, it kind of numbs that feeling a little bit, so it's not as nice, right? So it's tough. It's a tough call either way. I get, I get both. It's a tough call. Most companies are putting off making those calls about where their employees have to work. The pandemic put office workers in this limbo for a year and a half, and it looks like it's going to stay that way for a bit longer. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. What endangered places in Colorado are worth saving, and how do they reflect the state's underrepresented and native communities, which can all too often be overlooked? That's the evolving mission of Colorado Preservation, Inc. It's now accepting proposals for what to consider adding to next year's list as it marks its 25th anniversary. I spoke with Kim Grant about the effort in February when three places were added to this year's list. He's the director of Colorado's Most Endangered Places program, which is part of Colorado Preservation, Inc. Hi, Kim. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. What makes a place endangered? Historic sites are threatened by a lot of different things that put them in danger. They could range from uh, development pressures on the front range to abandonment and neglect, um, economic decline in rural areas or even weatherization and the freeze-thaw cycle up in the mountains. And how do you decide what places are truly the most endangered in Colorado? We try to keep an eye on sites that, uh, where their status changes and we you know, wonder about what's going on with them. But we actually have a formal nomination process. It's very grassroots, and anyone can nominate a site. And then a reviewer is signed to each site, and they go out and carry out a review and interview the nominator and the stakeholders and people in the community. And then it goes through a three-stage review process by region and eventually goes to a statewide meeting we call Big Monday, where we get together and we hash out all of these sites 
And we try to make the really difficult decisions about which sites to list each year. And I'm curious, when you think about that decision, what are the pressures on you? Is there a money pressure? Is there a pressure of deciding which places are most important? What do you have to weigh? Well, we have to weigh the relative significance of the sites. And we also consider the geographic distribution of them because we like to have a broad representation of sites and resources. We also consider things like the diversity of sites and the different stories behind them about uh, different ethnic groups and uh, events in Colorado. And we look at the potential for partnerships in the communities um, and the degree of support that exists for saving these places. And we kind of weigh all of those factors. How important is community involvement or community support in that process? Community support is really important because you know, it's hard to save a site if the property owner doesn't want to see it saved or if the community doesn't care about it, if it's not important to them. And also when you're building public support, people have powerful connections to these places and their personal testimony and their stories are often really compelling to getting other people involved. This year's list, it includes not one, but an entire group of bridges. I understand some of these date back to 1888. Why did bridges rise to the level of inclusion this year? Well, Colorado has a a really unique geophysical environment with mountains and streams and rivers and plains. and, And by necessity, we have a lot of bridges. And those bridges also reflect the time and era in which they were built the conditions under which they were built, and they also um, relate to the communities around them. And CDOT, in their credit, has a terrific inventory of all their bridges on their system. And they also know of about 46 of them that are eligible for the National or State Register of Historic Places. And they reached out to us, and we hope to work with them to save as many as 20 of them in place. Other states have a pretty strong bridge preservation ethic, but that really hasn't taken root in Colorado now. And we hope to do that and also build with support from local communities to saving some of these really iconic bridges. Does a place have to be designated on the National or Local Historic Registry to be considered worth saving? No, it does not. But sometimes that's a key step or an early first step, particularly uh, as a gateway to potential funding down the line. Now, another endangered place on the list predates Colorado as a state. The Lafayette Head Home and Ute Indian Agency was built in 1855, and it played an important role in the development of Colorado. How so? Well, Lafayette Head was a real interesting character. He was a soldier. He was a a businessman of a government agent, and he married into a prominent Hispano family in Santa Fe and was one of those first settlers who came north from New Mexico into the San Luis Valley and founded the town of Guadalupe, which flooded and then eventually um, moved across the river to become Conejos. Conejos was this incredible melding of cultures who often had a very uneasy coexistence. And you had the uh, Anglo-European trappers and traders and settlers pouring into the area following this idea of manifest destiny. You had the um, longtime Hispano residents um, who were part of Mexico before statehood. 
And then, of course, you had the indigenous peoples, primarily the Ute and uh, Apache tribes, and had positioned himself sort of in between all these groups and tried to balance the interests of, of the two and was a very prominent person who went back with the tribes to negotiate treaties in Washington, D.C. He later became the first lieutenant governor of Colorado and so on. But not a whole lot was really known about him. Um, he doesn't really show up as one of the top three or four people in Colorado that you hear about in association with statehood. But really, Colorado's history began down in this area and, and not so much uh, during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush in 1859. Another important thing he did, he was really instrumental in helping end indigenous slavery in Colorado, right? Yes. Um, slavery was a very common phenomenon among all of these groups, unfortunately, at the time, and had himself uh, owned slaves. And one of the things he did was to put a list together of all um, the people held in slavery in the valley and used that to help President Andrew Johnson um, push through legislation that ended indigenous slavery. The third endangered place added to this list this year is the Winter Park Balcony House. But there was disagreement about whether it's worth saving. What's the discussion there? Well, it's a mid-century modern uh, resource. And um, some folks just don't appreciate mid-century modern architecture as much. And there are pressures for redevelopment because it sits right at the base of the ski resort. And it's this amazing um, place that was really the first passive solar building before that term was even used at a ski resort. And as far as we know, it's, it's probably the only mid-century modern resource at a Colorado resort. And we think uh, a win-win solution can be found to uh, rehabilitate it and adaptively reuse it and also use the area behind it to build five or six stories of additional resort amenities like condominiums and, and visitor services that they need to stay competitive. There are some success stories to places that were previously endangered. One of them is an orchard in Montezuma County. Why an orchard? What makes it special and how was it preserved? An orchard is an example of a cultural landscape. And this orchard was significant because it won uh, four gold medals at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And at one time, there were hundreds of small orchards in Colorado. It was just a, a very common feature of the landscape. Over time, those disappeared. The industry consolidated. You know, places like Washington State sort of took over the apple industry, for example. And uh, these orchards withered on the vine and died. But some really, really farsighted people understand the role that they play in the history of Colorado, but also in the future as food resources. And there's a group called the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project that started around this gold medal orchard. And they now work with heirloom apples and heritage orchards throughout southern Colorado and have made great strides in accomplishing this. So this is going to be really cool to save this historic cultural landscape. Let's talk about another place that you consider saved, Goodnight Barn in Pueblo County. We actually talked about the barn on Colorado Matters in 2018 when a million-dollar makeover was planned. What is this barn, and what does it look like now? The barn was built by Charles Goodnight in around 1870, and it was the northern terminus of the Goodnight Loving Trail. 
he was a Texas pioneer and cattle driver, and he brought cattle up to Colorado and up to the markets in Pueblo and Denver and established this ranch. And it's built out of stone that's quarried nearby. His ranch hands did this work. It's a very large and spectacular barn. It's probably one of the most significant agricultural resources in terms of its architecture. And at one point, folks at Texas A&M University wanted to disassemble the barn and move it down to their campus, down in the area where uh, Goodnight got his beginnings. And that prompted the city of Pueblo to get involved to save this thing. And that was clear back in 2002 or so. So sometimes it takes a long time to pull together the resources to save these sites. But the, the friends of the Goodnight Barn or the Goodnight Barn Preservation Committee have done a terrific job of plucking away at this project and finding partners and getting great contractors to work on it. And it's beautifully restored now. As you see these places that are considered endangered, has anything changed over the years? Is it just the passage of time that makes something endangered? Or is there an evolving philosophy about what's worth preserving? Um, That's a great question. And, And there is an evolving philosophy because we used to focus a lot in the preservation world on the, you know, great, fabulous landmarks of the rich and famous. But there's an awareness now that that the ordinary vernacular landscapes and buildings have important stories to tell, too, particularly if they're part of broader social movements or um, things that change over time or specific governmental policies like the New Deal, for example. So we try to cast a wide net and and recognize that uh, what's historic, you know, in the future may not be considered so important now. Um, you know, in the old days, when the preservation movement began, everyone was really enamored with the beautiful Victorian houses and things like that. But the buildings of the modern era were not as well appreciated, and a lot of them got demolished. And so we have to um, build a future with historic places, with an idea that we want to save good representative examples of every era in America's history. And as you've been working on this program, what kinds of personal stories do you hear from people who are directly touched by some of these endangered places? Well, they are touched and they're powerful stories and they come out of the blue sometimes. We were filming at the Doyle School down near Pueblo one day and uh, a guy drove up on his truck and hopped out of his truck and said, I went to school here when I was in third grade and I grew up in this area. And, uh, you know, he came in and he told us all about what it was like to go to school in that one-room schoolhouse. Uh, Another example is we've been working recently on the Foxton Post Office, and a woman pulled up and jumped out of her truck and said her mother was the postmistress, and she just broke into tears when she came inside the place because she remembers as a little girl what it was like, you know, coming to work with her mom every day. And another example is the historic synagogue that we're working on in Trinidad, Temple Aaron. Since that project got started, we've heard from a number of people that are directly related to the original builders of that magnificent building back in the 1880s. Well, Kim, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these stories of the places that you're working to preserve. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. 
Kim Grant is the director of the Colorado's Most Endangered Places program. We spoke in February, so the preservation effort has saved 52 places so far. The organization is now accepting proposals for what will include, be included in next year's list. The deadline to submit is September 10th. We'll put a link to how to get involved at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.